you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. All right, let's jump into uh, let's jump into the Gospel of Mark. Some of you are thinking, when is this guy ever going to quit preaching out of Mark? Well, lectionary year C starts the first week of Advent, and Mark is not the Gospel for year C. Luke is, so you've got that going for you. Um, no more preaching from Mark for a while, at least. Well, maybe up until Advent, maybe maybe one time in Advent, but after that, no. So we're going to be reading from a passage of Scripture today that is called, uh, by many scholars, referred to as the Apocalypse of Mark, sometimes called the Little Apocalypse, um, sometimes called the Markan Apocalypse. But we're only going to be reading eight verses of it, and it's quite an extensive passage to unpack. Even these eight verses are. But we're going to try our best this morning to do that. And that means that... Um, this is a bit of um, a sermon as well as some pieces of instruction on how we deal with apocalyptic literature. And I know for some of us that's just like, ah, we got to do that. Well, I just feel like um, apocalyptic literature has been so misused in the church, for one, one thing, that most of us who've grown up in church for any length of time, especially those in my generation, and just kind of throwing up our hands and be like, I don't get any of it, whatever, you know. Um, sometimes we try to get in there and find these timelines we were taught as children and youth, and we're like, yeah, we just don't see that in there anywhere. Um, the other thing is, is that I, I just think that abandoning apocalypse, has anybody watched the news this week, by the way? All right. Abandoning apocalypse, <laughs> I feel like is a disservice to the current times in which we live, which sure does feel very apocalyptic, doesn't it? Um, I mean, it's, it's just bizarre. I mean, I was just, this week I had lunch with another minister, and, and, and we actually pondered the idea of, like, is this it? <laughs> you know, is this uh, the beginning of the eschaton, ever how you imagine that, the end of the world, the end of the age? Um, because it certainly does feel like right now these are apocalyptic times. If you don't believe that it's apocalyptic, apocalyptic times in terms of what's happening in the world, uh, it is definitely apocalyptic in terms of the revelations that are happening in our world. The word apocalypse means to reveal something. I know we often imagine it as like the end of the, end of the world, and it is the end of the world as we know it, because revelations always end the world as we know it, right? Um, anytime something, some truth that you're not aware of comes to light, it changes everything. Whether that truth is um, a relationship that you thought was good and it wasn't so great, whether that truth is that you thought you were healthy and it turns out something actually really bad is happening in your body, uh, whether that revelation is you think you've got job security and one day you find out that you don't, you know, those are ways in which apocalypses happen in our lives. And when they do, those, are, those moments are the end of the world as we knew it. Um, they're the end of an age, the end of an era, they're the end of a chapter. And so apocalyptic literature can't be avoided in our context. I mean, 
we have to engage it. Um, maybe now, uh, more than we have at any other time, at least in my generation. And so I think it's important that we do it. So having said all that, let's dive in and do a little bit of work on Mark 13 this morning and uh, see what the Spirit will speak to our hearts through this passage. As he came out of the temple, now this is Jesus, the, the uh, one coming out of the temple here. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. And then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. And when he was sitting at the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter, James, and John... Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Now, all of this week's lectionary passages, by the way, the lectionary was not kind this week. Uh, I told my wife when I opened it up, I opened it up and read it, and then I closed it and said, well, it's a rough week. Um, none of the lectionary passages this week are particularly easy to preach. All of them deal with, in one way or another, all of the lectionary passages this week deal with destiny in one way or another. Uh, the Old Testament readings were from 1 Samuel, and they covered the story of Hannah, the uh, mother of Samuel, who prayed for a son because she didn't have one. And in the narrative, if you were to read that text, her husband tries to convince her that it's okay. He still loves her without a son. Uh, but she responds to him by letting him know that she doesn't feel like she has a future without an offspring. So there's this tension between living in the present and wanting to have a destiny and also wanting to show her friends and those who despise her that God does indeed want her to have a future through a child, through a son. And so there's that and, and God, answering that, uh, or God answering that prayer and her praising God for hearing her prayer. The New Testament reading uh, was from the epistle to the Hebrews. And it concerns Christ's continual role as priest. And the exhortation that Christians be intentional about gathering together as they approach the day of the Lord which is, in the minds of the Hebrew people, God's destiny. That, that God has been doing everything God has been doing in Israel up until this point to get them to their appointed destiny as his people. And not only that, but his appointed destiny and what he wanted to do in their lives. So they would hear that language there. This idea that we need to be intentional about gathering together as we feel like we're being pulled closer and closer into God's future. And then we have our reading from Mark this morning, in which Jesus tells the disciples 
that the destiny of Jerusalem is not what they expected. In particular, that the destiny of the temple and the surrounding buildings of the temple complex is not what they expected. Now I want to set you at ease. I'm not going to preach a sermon necessarily on destiny, as we often hear it. But as it turns out, destiny is uh, preaching on destiny is actually good for business. Um, if you don't believe me, just turn in to tune into your local Christian broadcasting network, and you'll hear lots of sermons about finding your destiny, getting to your destiny. Uh, some of them will even tell you how much it costs if you'll send in the money. God will give you this destiny. Um, or you could tune in to your latest sermon from your favorite megachurch. Um, preaching on destiny is good for business. We humans have a tendency to thirst for knowledge about our futures. Um, maybe I'm the only one, but I'm one of those folks I really, really, really like to know what's going to happen in life and in everything I'm, I'm going to be part of, right? Uh, even though I'm a seven, I'm still a little bit introverted, so when I get invited places, I need details. You know, like, what's going to happen when I get there? I need to know the layout, I need to know the future. And the same is true in my life. When I'm in that moment of between where I was and where I'd like to be, it's a very anxiety-filled moment for me. And we, ha we all have this tendency to want to know our futures. If we only knew what to expect, we think, or what to avoid, we think life in the present would be so much easier. But preaching on destiny can be tricky business as well. In fact, uh, after years of doing this whole preaching thing, I'm less convinced than I used to be that helping people discover their divine destiny or the church's destiny collectively, uh, I'm less and less convinced that that's part of the good news of the gospel. I'm not sure what role it actually plays in there. In fact, a lot of that just turns more into self-help stuff than it does actual gospel preaching. And I learned early on in my preaching ministry that preaching on destiny uh, might actually be bad news for some people. It might not actually be good news. In my first church that I pastored, I preached what I thought was a rousing sermon on your finding your God-given destiny, right? And I thought that I had provided my congregation with something that was meaningful and helpful, something that would help them navigate life. I was like 20-something years old at the time, so uh, there was a lot I didn't know yet. And I remember after service, after I thought that I just encouraged everyone immensely, one of the elderly men in the congregation pulled me aside with tears in his eyes. And he, he told me in so many words that he had struggled his whole life to find this divine destiny thing that preachers talked about. And now at nearly 80 years old, he wasn't sure that he was ever going to find it. Because he had felt in his lifetime that things had not went as he had planned. And, and I, I understood at that moment that such preaching was a bit like dangling a carrot out in front of the congregation. It excited people to think that God uh, had their future secured and if they did the right things, the formula would add up and they would miraculously walk into this thing that God had planned for them since the day they were born. Uh, if they did the right thing, God would unlock destiny and, and just pour out blessings on them and they would never have a worry again. Because even though I wasn't saying that, that's a bit like what that sounds like, this whole idea of divine destiny and kind of holding this out there. 
More than that, I knew this man's story. I knew that this man had lived a life where very few things had worked out as he had planned. Most recently, he had moved to the mountains. That's where we pastored at. Most recently, he had moved to the mountains because his wife and himself, they had worked hard their entire lives to have a nice life of retirement in the mountains of North Carolina. They had saved money to travel and to have this house, a nice house in the mountains. But things didn't go that way because his daughter um, became a drug addict. She got involved in an abusive relationship. And they ended up spending their, their, entire, their entire retirement years raising their grandchildren. Not only that, but early on after they had retired, his wife had a series of health issues that emptied out their savings. They ended up living in their temporary home that they were planning on living in for just a while till they found their dream home uh, for the rest of their lives. Not only that, their savings were gone, their retirement was gone, they couldn't travel, and they lived on a fixed income in a small house, and they could barely keep up. This was not the destiny that they had expected. This was not the destiny that they had planned and prayed for. Now, in our reading this morning, we have the story of Jesus' disciples who are enamored with the architecture of Herod's temple in Jerusalem and the buildings that surround it. Now, Herod, despite his faults, Herod, which he had many faults, um, Herod, though, had led a bit of a technological revolution in Israel regarding, te uh, regarding architecture in particular. Um, you may not know this, a little bit of trivia for you, but concrete that sets underwater was actually invented by Herod. Uh, not Herod himself, but the scientist that worked under Herod, and of course he got the credit for it. It wasn't until the time of Herod that you could build pillars in the sea uh, or pillars in a body of water or anything for that matter. And that wasn't the only thing that Herod was able to do. Herod also was, a, was beyond his time uh, in leading architecture with big stones, which is what Herod's temple was built out of. Massive one-piece slabs of marble connected together with gold in the grout, if you will. Um, and so it was beautiful. And it wasn't just the temple, but it was the temple complex. All the buildings around it had been built using this technology. And Herod had done all this in an attempt to send a message to Israel that the Roman Empire was good for them. And that progress was being made. That they were coming out of the dark ages. And entering into a modern progressive age. And the Roman Empire was to thank for that. And that was his job was to make Rome look good. And as they came out of the temple together. They looked around and marveled. Now these men are from Galilee. So they're in the big city. And they're looking around. They're marveling at these beautiful buildings. And they tell Jesus. Isn't it magnificent? Everything here, this is our heritage. This is what we've, what we've grown to become. This is where we are at. But their bubbles of wonder were quickly popped when Jesus told them that one day those huge marble stones would no longer be standing on top of one another. Now, of course, such a prediction immediately aroused the curiosity of the disciples. And they begin to ask questions. When will this happen? More importantly, though, 
How can we be prepared for this destiny? When will this happen? Tell us the signs so that we can be ready. To which Jesus responds by giving his disciples some signs accompanied with some warnings. Now, it's not just in these eight verses, all right? If you have your Bibles and you want to look ahead, you'll discover that Jesus spends the entire chapter of Mark 13 telling them about the signs of these times and issuing warnings to them that they be careful and that they be mindful and that they pay attention to the right things and that they not be led astray by the wrong things. Jesus' signs and warnings are not given necessarily so that they could definitively know the exact times and dates of when these things were to come. In fact, if you follow Jesus' dialogue in Mark chapter 13, you'll eventually end up at verse 32, where Jesus tells them very explicitly, that day or hour no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So even in Jesus' answer to them, while he's giving them these signs and these things to look for and these warnings that they not be caught up in the fury of those apocalyptic times, he then reminds them or tells them that nothing will be able to help them know exactly when that day is coming. No one knows except for God, not the angels, nor even himself, the Son. Now Mark 13, like I said, is called the Little Apocalypse, and in comparison with Matthew and Luke's version of this sermon, this is Jesus' apocalyptic sermon, um, even in, in contrast with theirs, it's much shorter. Mark's apocalyptic sermon is short, it's concise, and it's vivid. But this is the nature of everything in Mark's gospel, right? And I know uh, I've been preaching on Mark a lot, so hopefully we can pull back from some of those reserves Everything in Mark is this way. Mark is written very abruptly, very quick. I like to call Mark the street gospel, you know? It feels like people huddled together in a dark room somewhere, and they just wrote down the most important things, and they sent it out as fast as they could. In fact, the manuscripts we have of Mark are riddled with bad grammar and bad spelling, and even integrates Latin transliterations into the text. Um, it's a very unique book in that regard in the New Testament. In fact, even the way it begins is different. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, Mark begins with the preaching of John the Baptist. It's almost like we start right in the middle of the gospel story. There's no Christmas story. There's no Mary. There's no Joseph. There's no wise men. There's none of that stuff. No angels, no shepherds, anything like that. It just begins right almost in the middle of the story. The curtains open, and boom, we are right in the middle of what God is doing. And John the Baptist is out there preaching in the wilderness. Mark's gospel, Mark's narrative, has a way of keeping us dizzy while at the same time emphasizing the nature of time and how it changes. What seems like an end to one story in Mark functions as the beginning of another story. And sometimes in Mark, uh, the beginnings and the endings happen simultaneously. There's these things in Mark we like to call Mark and Sandwiches where Mark will start one story and then in the middle of that story, he'll tell another story. And then he'll come back and finish the story he started in the first place. And the story in the middle helps us understand the full implications of the story that he started with. These are ways in which the beginnings and endings of story happen simultaneously 
in Mark's narrative. But why does Mark do this? Why is there all, why is there all of this fast and concise storytelling in Mark? Wouldn't it be better to be slow and thorough, especially when dealing with apocalyptic themes, which Mark deals with throughout his gospel? I mean, nothing raises questions more than when you start talking about the apocalypse, right? I mean, on your job, nobody wants to talk about your faith if they're not a Christian, but you start talking about the apocalypse and suddenly everybody is interested, right? Uh, you know, I, I kind of have my foot in a lot of different worlds, and so on social media, I'm part of a lot of groups. In fact, I get added to groups all the time, and I'm like, no, not another group. Uh, it's kind of like I used to get hammered with Candy Crush Saga requests all the time. Now I just get put in groups, and I'm not sure which is worse. But just this week, I was, I was reading through a couple of groups, and one of the groups is, uh, is kind of a more theological, conservative, traditional sort of a Christian group, which I'm part of that group. And then I'm part of another group that is a much more kind of non-traditional, um, progressive, contemporary uh, theological group. And just this week, both groups were talking about the apocalypse. In one group, the question was raised, are you preaching about when Jesus is coming back? Are you telling your people Jesus is returning? And in the other group, uh, they were exploring... Um, what it looked like for Jesus to come back. What, what, what did that mean in real relevant terms? How would we know? And, and what, would, what, what would be the import of that moment? But in both of those uh, threads, in both of those groups, pastors on both sides expressed that there was a deep curiosity among their congregations about the apocalypse, that just the mention of it enthralled people. In fact, one person said that his dad's church runs about a thousand, and when he announced that he was going to do a series on the apocalypse, the first Sunday, 3,500 people showed up at the door. Even in our reading this morning, some of you are hoping that there's questions I will answer for you in the reading. There's questions that linger, some of the questions you've been holding on to about apocalypse and what it means. And, and what we've been told, and what about that should we hold on to, and what about that should we let go of. But I think that that is exactly what Mark does in this gospel. He understood that in the end, apocalyptic moments will always raise more questions than answers. And that even the best answers in apocalyptic times aren't always the most helpful ones. For instance, We've all tried to say the right things to a family who has just lost a loved one or a friend who's just lost their job or a co-worker who just found out they have the big C, cancer, and the outcome doesn't look good. I think we all know what it feels like to walk away from those moments feeling as if our words were shallow and unhelpful. In fact, in those moments... It seems like nothing we can think of saying will bring clarity to their apocalypse. And this is why Jesus doesn't answer the disciples' questions about the fall of the temple directly. But instead calls them to live in a way that does not focus all of their attention on the difficult and world-ending events 
of their future. Just to add a little bit more context, Mark was written around the time when these events actually happened. The gospel itself was written around 70 CE, 70 AD. Um, and the temple was either getting ready to be destroyed and these buildings were, 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 were coming down or it had just happened at the time that Mark writes this gospel. And during this time, because there was battles and there was war and there was struggle in Israel and in Jerusalem, there was a strong temptation in those days to join the resistance against Rome, to fight as a Jew and save the last structure for which the Jews felt held their national identity. What you may not realize is that there were people in this time who arose and claimed to be the Messiah for Israel. There were generals who were very successful in their exploits against Rome who were considered by their peers to be messianic figures. And there were some who were beginning to believe that maybe they were the Messiah. Those who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah began to think some of these military leaders were the Messiah. Wars were springing up on the right and the left. The conflict in Jerusalem had effects around the area as well. Creation itself, it felt like, was being shaken. There was a draw in this time to react, to panic, to try and do something to stop the sky from falling. And those feelings were intense and those voices were loud. But Jesus said, be careful. Be careful that the signs and the heroes and the temptation to resist everything that is happening doesn't lead you astray. Beware. That's his answer to the disciples. Beware that you're not led astray. There will be signs. There will be messiahs. There will be heroes. There will be wars. There will be shaking. It will feel as if the sky is falling. But beware that you're not led astray. As Jesus continues in Mark chapter 13, he tells the disciples that not only will their temple be destroyed, right? But that they will also be persecuted. That their families will be ripped apart. That the political divide, the political climate between Rome and Israel would drive a wedge between those who wanted to resist Rome and those who wanted to let Rome have its way. In the land. Jesus is clear in this, in this sermon to his disciples that the apocalypse touches everyone. <laughs> no one gets out of it. Or as Emily Towns says, yes, we will all be touched by the awful destruction of the apocalypse as none escape its ravages. But for those who live with a faith that seeks a deep relationship with God, one that does not rely on the trite formulas of poorly developed doctrines, we find in and through God's grace the pathway through devastation and suffering, salvation. For the time of destruction, which is an ending, is also a beginning for people of deep faith. I'm also reminded of the words of Walter Brueggemann in several of his commentaries 
on the prophets, particularly those commentaries which regard the laments of Israel. That in apocalyptic times, there is often this, this, this human, very human desire to want to stop it all from falling apart. But oftentimes, in apocalyptic times, it is actually God's desire that it all fall apart. Even in terms of the temple construct, time and again we see in Mark's gospel that God is judging the temple. I mean, even in the context of this sermon, this follows Jesus going into the temple, kicking butt and taking names, right? I mean, he, he marches in, turns over tables, issues an indictment of judgment on them. He curses the fig tree, which is a symbol of Israel's prosperity. Um, and here he tells his disciples, this whole thing is going to come tumbling down. And Brueggemann reminds us many times over and over and over again that in the prophetic literature, this is actually what the prophets are trying to get the people of God to see. That even though it's painful and it hurts and, it, and there's no way that you get out untouched from it, that these very things may be God's plan. That the system doesn't need reform, the system needs to come tumbling down. And those are hard times. It's difficult. You see, I can't stand before you or sit down with you at any time and tell you what your future holds or what the future of the church in America looks like or what even the future of America itself looks like. I can't tell you those things. What I do believe, though, is that these are apocalyptic times and there are many voices competing for our attention. There are many voices competing to define our identity. Which your former pastor, Jonathan Martin, preached a fantastic sermon on years ago from Mark on the demoniac of the Gadarenes, whose very identity was the voice of many. And the demon's name was Legion, which was the name of the Roman Empire's army that was occupying that part of the Middle East. And so even in that story, we have someone who can't even say his own name because his oppressors are trying to get his identity and have succeeded in that narrative. Jesus offers a clarion call here. A clarion call and a reminder that apocalyptic times are deceptive times. There's lots of voices. There's lots of illusions. But Jesus says, Amidst all of these things, to keep your eyes affixed on the coming of the Son of Man. The signs are this. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. It's going to be really bad. But don't get sidetracked. Keep your eyes on the coming of the Son of Man. Now, while I do believe Jesus is going to come in a very physical way at the end of the age, in the eschaton, uh, I don't think that Jesus' coming is delayed completely until then. In fact, I see Jesus returning again and again and again and again in our lives and in our world. Where would you be at today? had Jesus not come to you in your end-of-the-world moment? Where would you be today 
had Jesus not come to you in your apocalypse. I think one good example of this this week as I was reflecting, Mr. Rogers once talked about how scary times come. But he reminded his audience that when times are scary, when things are traumatic, to pay attention to the helpers. To pay attention to those who are in the midst of all of those things, doing what they can to help those who are hurt. Now that is one small way in which we might imagine keeping our eyes affixed on the right things. Here we have Jesus calling his disciples to not be led astray by those who would want them to join as a hero, as a Messiah, a resistance. Or those who would just lament with no hope. Jesus is saying, no, you have something else to look forward to. That in the midst of all of this, the Son of Man will come. And when the Son of Man comes, he will do new things. Amen? He will do new things. Now that doesn't mean that we deny the pain and the suffering that we go through. God is okay with us and our laments and our cries and our struggles and our prayers for understanding. That does not put God off. But what God wants more for us is to not live our lives in a way that is controlled by those things, but to have a faith that transcends those things, a faith that looks to how Jesus is coming to us again and again and again because Jesus is our only hope for resurrection. He is our only hope for a new beginning in our end-of-the-world moments. He is our only hope for new life, for a new chapter. Jesus is the hope that when one chapter ends, another one is indeed opening. Stand with me. Musicians, you can come. Pastor, I have lots of questions still. Good. That means we have preached an appropriate sermon on the apocalypse because it arouses questions in us, just like it did the disciples. But let us hear the words of Jesus. Watch out that no one leads you astray. Watch out. Beware. When you hear of these things, don't be alarmed. Listen to this language. Don't be alarmed. This must take place. As painful as it is, this must take place. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes. Other translations talk about floods and fires and shaking in the heaven above and on the earth below. Blood even is mentioned in the other iterations of this sermon. There will be famines. But this is just the beginning. And notice this, of what? Birth pangs. (laughs) 
love this. Birth pangs. Not death rattle. Birth pangs. You see the contrast? Um, I've never given birth, thankfully. But for those who have, they tell me, my wife has told me, the pain is excruciating. And as bad as it is, it's one pain that you forget quicker than just about any other pain as soon as you hold that child in your arms. Because that child represents something new. New life. A legacy. A future. Something to hand down. Someone to hand your life down to. And this is what Jesus says about apocalyptic times. Those of us who claim to be the disciples of Jesus don't look at the apocalypse and hear death rattle. We hear birth pangs. We see something new coming out of it. We see past the smoke and the dust and we try our best to make our way through it all, not grabbing on to false hopes, false heroes, false ideologies, those that say if you just do it this way, it'll save the sky from falling. No. We surrender to whatever it is God is doing in our moment. And we look for the ways in which Jesus is coming and coming and coming again and how he is calling us to carry those who are hurt in those moments through those storms. Amen? Birth pangs. God is doing something new. Amen? Father, we thank you for what, um, for what you are doing in our, in our midst and in our world and in our church and in our lives, God. Father, right now, these are confusing times. There are so many things that I don't have the answers for. There's so many ways, God, in which I don't know how to respond or react to what is happening in our world, God. So, Lord, I pray that you would give me wisdom. Give, give the church wisdom. We are your body, Lord, so help us to know how we can come into the midst of these apocalyptic moments in your glory and with your um, with your presence, Lord, to bring hope and healing. God, help us to have the kind of faith that acknowledges the pains that we feel, but that looks forward to what is coming out of all of that, God. Hear our cries. Pay attention to our laments. But God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, as Mark tells us time and again in his gospel, what the Lord is doing in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.